This is the sermon podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for worship Sundays at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 11.15 a.m. This is Lord of Life. There is a place for you here. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. The first lesson is from Isaiah chapter 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Listen, so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. See, you shall call the nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord, that he may have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Holy Wisdom, Holy Word. The second lesson is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And do not complain as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example, and they were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so you may be able to endure it. Holy wisdom, holy word. The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 13th chapter. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? 
Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The Gospel of the Lord. The theme that seems to run through all of our readings this morning is the theme of causality. Why does stuff happen? Why doesn't stuff happen? Why does the universe unfold as it does, and what is the meaning behind it? What is our role in it? We seem to be hardwired for causality. Hardwired to see how one event leads to another, to another, to another. We want to link things together in narratives that help us make sense. And so when things happen to us, one of the first questions we ask is why? Not always. When the turn signal bulb goes out on my car, I don't pull over to the side of the road and go, why? Unless I suppose if I've been pulled over by a policeman for it, then I might do that. Or if something wonderful happens to me, I don't run out into my yard asking the universe why. But if something bad happens, if something happens that really shakes me up, then I ask the question, why? As I suspect you do as well. Why has this happened to me? How can this make sense? Where does God fit into this? It's not a question we can always easily answer, although it doesn't stop us from trying. When someone we know and love is suffering or have received a terrible diagnosis, we go to their side and one of the first things we want to say is, it'll be all right. But we don't know that. We want it to be all right. And we want to enforce that narrative onto the situation as much so we can reassure ourselves 
as we can reassure the other. Because deep down, I think one of the most frightening things that we face in life, one of the most terrifying things, is the possibility that nothing makes sense. That nothing happens for a reason. Because if that is true, it means that we are powerless in the face of it. It means we can do nothing to control our fate. And rather than face off with that terror, we develop certain incantations to hold it at bay. We tell ourselves and others, God has a plan. Implying that somehow this thing we're going through fits into some broader plan that will bring it around to being all right. Or we tell each other, God answers prayer. Except that often we can't see how God answers prayer. And so then we say, well, God perhaps doesn't answer prayer in the same time frame that we would wish it. And we say, okay, well, how long? How long do I have to wait to see answer to prayer? A week? Two weeks? A lifetime? Or we tell each other that God is preparing us for something better, strengthening us which raises the specter of a terrifying God who pokes and prods us with sharp sticks just to see what we'll do. And behind it all is that niggling fear that maybe God doesn't hear our prayers. Maybe God doesn't have a plan. Maybe we are simply stumbling through a dark universe with nothing but our dreams to keep us company. Perhaps there were some of these in the audience when Jesus was teaching, and they raised that question of causality, they raised that question of why to Jesus. Why was it that some of your faithful people, Lord, were killed by Pilate such that their blood ran in the temple with their sacrifices? Why is it, Lord, that 18 people died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Or we might substitute, why did certain people die in the collapse of the Twin Towers and not others? Why them? Were they worse than others? Were they better than others? What distinguished them so that we can try not to be distinguished that way? 
How can we gain control of our fate so that we can avoid a similar fate? And then I ask myself, why does Jesus tell this parable in connection with these words to those who are questioning the fate of their comrades? Why does he tell this parable about this fig tree? It's an infuriatingly vague parable. There was a man. Who is this man? Who has a fig tree. And the fig tree hasn't produced for three years, so he says, tear it up and get rid of it. Why should it waste the soil? And then another undefined character comes in and says, hold off, let me work with it a bit. Let me see what I can do. Let me put some fertilizer on it. Let me prune it and aerate the soil. (coughs) Excuse me. And then we'll see what happens. Except it doesn't tell us what happens. It doesn't tell us what becomes of the tree, what the gardener achieves, or what the man who owns a tree finally decides to do. When I have read this story in the past, I have always envisioned myself as the fig tree, the one who is never as fruitful as perhaps I wish I were or wish I could be, I envision God as the one who owns the fig tree, who is perhaps disappointed with how I'm doing and wants to get rid of me. And then there is this gardener, this Jesus, who expresses the grace of God by saying, hold off on judgment and let me work a little longer. Let me see what I can do with him. And I say, thank you, Jesus which has its own difficulties. Once again, God doesn't come off very good in this interpretation. But when I hold this parable up against these words that Jesus speaks to the crowd, I wonder if maybe Jesus is communicating something to those who cry out, why? Because since Jesus doesn't tell us who these people are or what they represent, this story could just as easily be read the other way around. Where I am the one who comes to the fig tree looking for fruit and the fig tree who represents God gives me nothing. And so I say, why should I waste my faith anymore with a God who is invisible, with a God who makes empty promises, with a God who refuses to intervene when we desperately need intervention, with a God who fails to save those who are suffering. But then there's this gardener again. This gardener who steps in and says, give me 
a little more time. Let me work with it. One of the things that Luther pointed out repeatedly in his teaching was that the only God that we can know, the only God that we can see, the only God that we can hear is Jesus. This God incarnate, this one who comes into our realm of existence, who walks the same paths that we do, who suffers the same things that we do, who weeps, who grieves, this is the only God we can see. So would it be beyond the scope of possibility that Jesus might be able to work with our disbelief, with our struggles, with our doubts? Might God be able to show us something new and bring forth new fruit, not only in us, but in our understanding of God as well. Because if we believe that our faith is truth, if we believe that God is truth, then we have to believe that it will survive our inquiry. We have to believe that we can ask questions in the, faith, in the face of the truth. And so I'm never quite comfortable when we give answers for God that don't hold up to reasoning. I don't like falling back on the statement, well, it's a mystery. To say it's a mystery is just another way of saying I don't know. You know, the psalmists were much better at expressing these feelings, I think, than we are. The psalmists were not hesitant to shake their fist at God and say, what in the world is going on up there? Do you have no clue what's going on down here? How can you remain silent when those who are trusting you are suffering and dying? But rather than then say, oh, but don't worry, it's okay. They respond by remembering what they have experienced in the past. They respond by remembering, yes, but you are the one who brought our ancestors through the waters. You are the one who led them through the wilderness. You are the one who fed them in arid lands. You are the one who intervened for them over and over and over again. Because the thing about our lives and our experiences is that in our attempts to, to create a narration that makes sense. We are writing this story on the fly. Every morning we wake up, we have to write a new chapter in our story. And so our story never makes sense in the moment. 
It's only in retrospect that we can assign it meaning. And sometimes I think that our experiences with God never make sense in the present. I don't know what God's going to do today. But I can remember what God did yesterday and the day before and the day before. And so although I cannot answer the question why for today, I can lean forward in hope and in faith because I'm able to answer that question for yesterday. I have a love-hate relationship with Paul. On the one hand, he can speak of God's grace and mercy so powerfully and eloquently, and then he can turn around and load this layer of guilt on us. And today, it seems like he wants to assign causality between what happens to the people of Israel and God saying, well, you know, be careful that you're not faithless like they are or God will kill you. Be careful. Don't do what they did. But I suppose it's helpful to remember that he is looking back in retrospect. I doubt he would have been so confident in his answers if he had been in the wilderness with the people. If he had been going through these disasters that they went through. But perhaps he redeems himself a little bit in the final lines of that second reading because he reminds us, but you know, be careful. Because when you think you're standing, you may be falling. When you think you're right, you may be wrong. When you think you've got all the whys figured out, it may all crumble into chaos again. And then the gardener comes and says, wait one more year. Let me provide fertilizer. Let me take care of the tree. Let me feed you in the wilderness. And we'll take stock tomorrow. Tomorrow. And yet again, Tomorrow. Tomorrow, let us see what God has done for us. Tomorrow, let us sing our praises. Today, let us live in faith and hope. Amen.